Amen. I'm glad that you're here today, and I want to say that it's no accident that you're here today. God has a, a special word for you, and uh, in a little while after we finish with our, our worship time and, and uh, have our announcement video, we're going to have a church conference, which is a business meeting, and uh, if you're a member here, I hope that you will stick around and, and be a part of that. Uh, we need your input, and uh, I hope that you will uh, do that. But uh, this morning, we're going to be in uh, Romans 12. Uh, no surprise here, right? Uh, but we're going to be in Romans 12, 14 through 17. And if you have your scripture and want to go ahead and open up to that, um, we'll read that in just a moment. You know, I asked the question this morning, what does a true Christian look like? What does a Christian look like? And, and you know, the, the, the picture of a believer in your head, what do you see? Do you see someone that's tall? Do you see someone that's, that's short? Do you see someone that's uh, thin or maybe not so thin from, from all the potluck dinners? Um, do you picture someone with a smile or, or maybe a frown? Um, is there a look of superiority? Or does the person look like they're carrying the weight of the entire world on their shoulders? You see, what does a Christian look like? And in truth, believers come in all shapes and sizes. And they don't physically appear any different than people that we see in our, in our community, in our neighborhood. And, um, but what is supposed to set a believer apart from an unbeliever is a matter of the heart. It should be the heart. See, a Christian is to have different priorities, different goals, different values. And, and, and Christians relate to people differently than the rest of the world. And so I want to read this passage, and, and it, it, it's a tough passage, but um, I want you to understand that, that I struggle with this too, so it's not as if um, I've got this all figured out, okay? Um, we all struggle with this, what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, what it means to follow him. And so in, in Romans 12, uh, we're going to start in verse 14, and, and really it, it encapsulates everything that Paul has written uh, from Romans 1 through 11, and then you have in Romans 12 those two verses that are mountaintop verses, 1 and 2, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and in light of those verses, that's what we read in verse 14 now. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that even now that your word would just, um, just land and distill upon our hearts. 
Father, that, that we would recognize that you are speaking through your word to us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would, would bring a, a spirit of cooperation, a spirit of unity, a spirit of love, a spirit of conviction and repentance. Father, we all fall short of your standard, and we need your help. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us, and we ask this in your name. Amen. You know, in this paragraph here that we just read out of Romans 12, Paul gives us some very simple, if you will, character traits that we can look at and and should measure our own lives and and should give us the opportunity and and some focus for how we need to develop our faith. And and I think this is huge because um, these are really simple things. But they're certainly not easy. They're simple, but they're not easy. And, and uh, the first one I want to talk about is, is restraint and, and perspective. And you know, some of you have probably seen the, the I call it a quirky movie, The, the Princess Bride. And um, in that movie, you got Farm Boy, okay, who's madly in love with his, his buttercup, okay. Uh, Farm Boy's the hero of the story. And whenever Buttercup asks, uh, farm boy for something, he always responded the same way. He says, as you wish, okay? And, and so what, what we see is that the rest of the movie uh, really is set to show what great lengths farm boy will go in order to demonstrate his love uh, for the beloved buttercup, okay? And so if you haven't watched that movie, you might want to watch it, but it, it, it's pretty funny. But this is the way we should react, though, Whenever we read a command from the Lord, our first response ought to be, as you wish. When he tells us something that we need to do, we ought to say, as you wish. We know that he loves us, and we trust him, and we love him, and we should respond to any command with the words, as you wish. However, having, having told you how we should respond, I have to be very honest with you. When I hear the words of Paul, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, my response is not always as you wish. My response is usually, why? 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 I'm sorry if I disappoint you with my obvious lack of spiritual depth, but I have to be honest. I struggle with this. When someone persecutes me, when someone comes after me, I want to strike back. I want to complain. I want to hide. I want to brood. What I don't want to do is I don't want to extend a blessing to someone who is persecuting me. I understand what he is saying here. And I, I really feel like we need to commit this verse to memory. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
And, and one of my goals this morning is that we might have this memorized before we leave here today. And there's only 10 words. 10 words. You can do this, okay? Let's just say it together right now, all together, okay? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. One more time. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. See, the word bless here is the same word that is used in giving thanks at communion. It's the word that we get our word eulogy from, and it means to to give praise to God. And, And so at a funeral, when someone is giving a eulogy, what they are doing is they, they get up and they remember the positive things that, that a person uh, has done. And in a sense, we take time to thank God for their life. When it says, bless those who persecute you, it's the same word, bless, that we get our word eulogy from. And so the idea here is we are supposed to do this for people who persecute us. We are supposed to Talk about the positive. We're supposed to offer a blessing, to extend a blessing to them. You know, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus never taught a prosperity gospel. Jesus did teach a persecution gospel. He said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you too. We read in Matthew 5.10, the final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, our problem is simple. We believe that if we give a blessing to someone, we are basically letting them get away with their unfair treatment. We're actually giving them a pass. It feels like we are inviting them to victimize us again. And the natural reaction is to curse those who curse us. In fact, we're quick to curse and complain, not just in times of persecution, but also in times of inconvenience. Or maybe in times of embarrassment. We don't want to bless we want to give it back to them the way they gave it to us. You know, one, arth- one author writes this. He says, some studies have indicated that much high blood pressure and other anxiety-related disease is caused not by serious long-term problems and life-threatening pressures, but by persistent attitudes of resentment and hostility that eat at people who habitually react negatively to unpleasant situations and people. Some of our health issues is because we're hanging on to the bitterness and the resentment. When we take a hit, when, we, when, when something happens and we get persecuted. See, the idea of blessing our persecutors goes totally against our instincts. But in many ways, that's the very point. See, love, love is shown most clearly when it's directed toward those who deserve it the least. 
It's so stark. It's so arresting to us. And just as, as we show the depth of our faith most clearly when we're going through a hard time, that's when we really know where we stand in our faith. We show God's love at work in us most clearly when we love those who stand against us. I mean, it, it's such a, a, an eye-opening thing. We need to see past the actions and focus on the deep spiritual need of those who are persecuting us, those who are hurting us. You see, the pattern is, is pretty clear. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, and it was your sin and mine that put him there, when he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They have no clue what they're doing. When he was approaching Jerusalem, he was heading towards his execution. He was going to be crucified on the cross. And as he was heading toward Jerusalem, when he saw the city, when he saw the people, he began to weep. He was weeping over them. When Stephen was being stoned to death as the, fo the first post-resurrection martyr, it said that he prayed for his killers. Throughout the centuries, the brightest lights in the Christian world have been those who could extend a blessing to their enemies. I mean, there's, there's countless stories of people who have who've forgiven and loved, even maybe the person who killed their child. We see this sometimes in the news and in the courtroom and, and things like that. And when they show this love, they reveal the supernatural work of Jesus in them. Okay, we've got to say it again. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse. Next, the Apostle Paul continues, and, and next comes empathy. The second characteristic that he gives here is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We would call this empathy. It's the idea of feeling with someone else, with another. And maybe you've heard the old saying, it goes like this, a shared joy is twice a joy, and a shared sorrow is half a sorrow. It's a concise way of describing what we need to grasp. Because a shared sorrow becomes half a sorrow. In times of sadness, in times of loss, we feel all alone. When someone shares our sorrow, they lessen our pain. I mean, read the story about Job and his friends. When Job was going through great anguish, his friends came and they sat with him. They didn't say anything. They simply shared his pain. They were there with him. So on the surface, this is easier said than done. Have you noticed that we always think that what is happening in our life is so much more significant or difficult than what is happening in someone else's life. We think that because it happened to me, to you, 
And we think, you know what, it's so much worse than what's going on in my life. And many times when we get together with others, (laughs) we tell what we've recently endured. And we like to compare maybe our moans, our groans, our complaints. But listen, we can't share the sorrow of another until we take the focus off of us. We're so consumed with ourselves that all we can think about is what we're going through rather than what someone else might be going through. On the other side of the, jo- of the coin, a, a joy is enhanced when you share it with someone. I mean, you think about maybe you, you have a great vacation. You come home and you want to tell others about it. It was so fabulous. It was wonderful. Maybe you, maybe you were able to afford a new car or, or maybe you're watching a beautiful sunset. And, and it's wonderful, but it's even better when you're able to share it with somebody else. And I think that's huge. But it's difficult to decide which command is the more difficult to apply. The weeping with or the rejoicing with. I mean, sometimes someone else's pain may strike a chord with us. It may be like, you know what? I was going through that. I remember going through something like that. And it strikes a chord with us. When someone loses a child, for example... We may imagine how horrible that would be and we may put it in our own context of how horrible it would be to lose our own child and we mourn with our friend. It's true that often we don't know what to say in times like that. But we can still ache with one another. We can still be there. You know, this past week, the images coming out of Israel, they grieved me to the core. Some of the pictures, some of the video that, that, that we saw, it was hard to watch. And I really don't know how anyone could do the things that were done to innocent people. It makes me angry when I see that. And I recognize that Jesus says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. When God's word says that, it it shakes me at my core. And I'm convicted by the words of one commentator who said, to refuse to weep with another is to reveal a lack of compassion in your heart. And to refuse to rejoice with another reveals envy in your own heart. But either way, you have a serious problem. When you cannot weep with someone or rejoice with someone, you have a serious problem. Moving on to the next trait here, verse 16. I don't know who's calling me at this time. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Basically, being able to be easy to get along with. That command, be of the same mind toward one another in the NASB, in the the NLT, in the, the NIV, it says live in harmony with one another. 
See, I think Dr. Boyce uh, states, excuse me, states it succinctly when he says this. He said, Christians should be easy to get along with. <laughs> That's what he said. Christians should be easy to get along with. He's talking about not making sparks or causing turmoil. He's saying we should not be like those Christian crusaders who were always looking for a fight and hunting down Christ's enemies. We are to love and win people, not root them out and beat them senseless. Do you remember what the chief concern of Jesus' final prayer in the garden that was recorded in John 17? He prayed that his followers would be one with one another. And Jesus knew that the world would draw its conclusions about who he is from the way his followers treated each other. I mean, this sounds really simple. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. But folks, it's not so easy. It's not the case. Because Christians often come across as being harsh, as being judgmental, as being quick to turn our backs on someone else. It seems that we are prone to forget some very important but simple facts of life. The first one is that conflict is a part of life. Conflict happens. We will get on each other's nerves, some more quickly than others. But we will at times view things differently. And the test of Christian character is how we choose to respond. We can respond with grace or we can respond with hostility. But the choice is ours. Jesus tells us in his word that we need to, we need to follow him and they'll know that we are, are Christians by our love for one another. See, we are not always right. And I want to say you are not always right. Can we admit that today? We're not always right. Sometimes we get it wrong. This is going to be a revelation to some of you, but it's true for sure. Everyone, everyone has something to teach us. Being of the same mind requires that we be open to new understanding. Maybe we haven't walked a mile in their shoes. Maybe we don't know. We're all not at the same place spiritually. I mean, some of us may be passionate about a theological issue while others are being convicted about a social issue. You know, maybe one person may have great experiences and, and another may have a, a great ability to hear the whispers of God's spirit. Some are applauded by the masses while others are being used by God to change lives in the shadows. But being different is not a matter of being better than or worse than. It's just being different. He equips us differently. You see, the Christian life is not a competition. It's a relationship. I'm not in competition with anyone else. I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we talk about rewards in heaven, we make it sound like, like we are in competition. That who, to see who's going to get 
uh, to sit closest to the throne of God's grace. You know, it's like, it's like uh, we're, we're missing the point. It's not a question of where we sit or where we stand or where we kneel in relationship to the throne of heaven. What matters is who is on the throne. That's what matters. Because if it's anybody but Jesus Christ, you got things messed up. He needs to be on the throne. And, and, and you know, when we stop trying to rank each other and, and compete with each other, it becomes a great deal easier to help each other to grow in grace and in truth. We're going to say it again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I mean, you're going to have this when you leave here, I know. Humility. Let's talk about humility he says there, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I mean, Paul is telling us that a believer should be humble. True humility requires that we eliminate the social and the economic barriers. We must come to see that all people are loved by God. Regardless of their social standing, regardless of their income level, regardless of their nationality or their gender. You see, our job is to see people, not labels. Social barriers come because of our pride and because of our conceit. Somehow we have drawn the conclusion that we are better than someone else because we have more stuff than them. Or, or we have been blessed in different ways and somehow we think that qualifies us as better. See, the Bible clearly teaches that humility is to be the mindset of every believer. Humility. We're told that Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. It was our Lord <laughs> The Lord of all creation who knelt and washed the disciples' feet. Several times Jesus told us, he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, there are many stories and legends, if you will, of the, the humility of a man named Principal Cairns. Now, he would never enter a room first. He always said, you first, I follow. <laughs> Once he stepped onto a platform, he was going to give a, a talk and, and uh, there was a great burst of applause in welcome for him. He stood aside and let the man after him come first and then he himself began to applaud and he never dreamed that the applause could possibly be for him. He thought it must be for the other man. Folks, that's humility. Recognizing it's not about us. See, the world longs for people with that kind of humility. And William Barclay gives us two ways of maintaining humility. The first one is we must realize the facts. However much we know, we still know very little compared to the sum total of knowledge. We only know a little bit. 
however much we have achieved, we still have achieved very little in the end. And however important we may believe ourselves to be, when death removes us or when we retire from our position, life and work will go on just the same. See, we must constantly compare ourselves to God's standard, not the standard of other people, but to God's standard. See, it's when we see or, or hear the expert that we realize how poor our own performance is. You know, I might think I'm a, a pretty good chef, and then when I start watching some of these TV shows, it's like, man, that guy's got it going on. I don't know if I could do that, okay? Maybe you hear somebody that plays an instrument, and you think, you know what, I like to, I like to pick around on the guitar, but then you hear somebody who has it mastered, and all of a sudden you feel like, man, I'm not near as good as I thought I was. That guy's way better than me. But if we set our lives beside the life of the Lord of all creation, then we will see our unworthiness in comparison to the radiance of his sterling purity. Our pride will die and our self-satisfaction will shrivel up. You see, the humble person appreciates others, is willing to learn from others, builds bridges rather than walls, and is often used greatly by the Lord. Last time, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So what do we do now? How transformed are your attitudes? Are you blessing those who have wronged you? Are you sympathizing with others in their joys and sorrows? Are you practicing humility through true Christian unity? Are you being practicing that by taking the lowly job? Or do you think to yourself, I'm too good to do that job? If you need to grow in any of these, go to the foot of the cross often where Christ humbled himself for your sake and mine. So for some application, let's just make it personal, okay? Think about your difficult relationships and interactions from this past week. I want you to take some time and ask God to bless those whom you've had those discussions with or whatever, to bless them instead of blasting them, the one that you're thinking about. You know, someone has observed that our enemies are not necessarily those who hate us as much as they are people that we hate. The problem very well may be right here in our own heart. Who has wronged you more than others? See, it's reflexive to want to hurt people as much as they have hurt you. 
I'm going to ask you to pray right now for that individual who has hurt you so bad. Pray for that, that parent who has wounded you. That child who has broken your heart. That friend who just turned on you. That coworker who spread lies about you. That bully at school. Maybe it's that ex-husband or ex-wife. That in-law who despises you. And I want you to think of what you can do to give a verbal blessing to him or her this week. What can you do to give a verbal blessing to him or her? See, some of you are really struggling with that, aren't you? Because you're like, I don't want to do that. I like the practical advice that Ray Pritchard gives at this point. He said, when faced with someone who has mistreated you, ask God to do for them what you want God to do for you. Ask God to do for them what you're wanting him to do for you. See, the mere practice of blessing instead of blasting will change. It will transform your attitude. The shift in your spirit might be incremental. It might be small. But who knows what God will do in your heart if you begin extending that blessing instead of seeking retribution, asking God to help you to be redemptive. Maybe God will use you to reach that person that's been persecuting you as they see Jesus Christ in you. It really comes down to this. Do I really believe that if I follow what the Bible says, that God will show up and do what only he can do? Do I trust him and do I have faith in God? See, I would say that it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience, trusting him. As I wrap this up, I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back up. You know, Jesus never said that living as his disciple would be easy or popular. In fact, he went to great lengths to warn us that we would, that it would not be the case, that we would be persecuted. And our challenge is to train our hearts to pursue that which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is holy, knowing that these are also the things which are satisfying, which are life-changing, which are eternally significant. See, I would say to you this morning, it's a big job. So we better stop talking about it and start working on it. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I thank you for this time. Father, the words of Scripture sear our hearts and our consciences. Father, we know.